You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Russ Dargento, the founder and CEO of Fintrix. Fintrix is the leading data intelligence platform serving the private wealth community. They have a strong focus on global family offices and registered investment advisory firms. And from our standpoint, listeners, our Mammoth Health and Tech Fund uses Fintrix to help with our data management needs and our matchmaking to get us in touch with the right family office and RIA investors for our fund. So this is going to be just an incredible conversation today. Russ is a great guy. We're so thankful to have you here with us today, Russ. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for having me, Tommy. Well, Russ, as you know, we like to start off and just really get an understanding of our guest story. We want to hear about your life and how you went from growing up being an avid baseball player to now running one of the most important and dynamic data intelligence platforms in the financial industry. Yeah, uh, thank you. So background, yeah, born and raised here in, uh, in the Boston area. Big sports fan, uh, was fortunate enough to play baseball in, uh, in college, played my whole life, and that uh, was my first love. Was lucky enough to receive a, a scholarship to continue to do that down to the University of Connecticut. Um, so played at UConn for, for four years and uh, was lucky enough to, to play in the Cape Cod League and uh, a handful of, of other places. Uh, finished up in, in 2005, and then on from there, uh, had a really interesting uh interesting and and somewhat random uh path that uh led me here today so well we want to hear about that random path because i'm sure it's an incredible journey to get you from point a to point b and and especially one of the things we want to hear about russ uh most of our most of our guests have had some kind of big break or two in their career that really propelled them to the place they are today and our listeners definitely want to hear about that as well yeah, sure. I think there might be a, a couple uh, for me. I've had a number of fortunate um, fortunate breaks and uh, support along the way. But once I finished up baseball, you know, I, I started to actually really dive into and play a lot of uh, of poker um, randomly enough. And so at that time, uh, not sure if you recall, but poker was really booming and it was almost pop culture at at one point. Oh, the um, the World it, Series. Yeah. The World Series of Poker, Rounders, the movie. I mean, who didn't want to be Matt Damon at that age? <laughs> That's right, exactly. And so I really dug into that, and you know, became a student of uh, of the game, and it taught me a lot. You know, it taught me a lot about discipline, uh, game theory, but I think most importantly, it, it taught me the importance of kind of making calculated bets and understanding risk and you know risk return and things like this. Uh, poker is a really interesting game. I mean, it 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 teaches you so much about process and how the process is in your control, how you react to the outcome of a hand or something like that is in your control, and really everything else is is just luck. And I think it's 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 a great metaphor for uh, for life, and in hindsight, that really served me well. So I actually did that for uh, a couple of years. Um, did quite well. At some point, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to continue to do this forever. And at that time, um, you know, I've always been entrepreneurial and kind of wanted to to scratch that itch. Um, and so, you know, not to get too far into the weeds, but as I mentioned, you know, my, my first love was uh was baseball. And so, you know, I had this idea where I could go out and uh and basically track um the top 500 high school baseball prospects in the country throughout their summer ball and high school seasons and really kind of follow them and create all kinds of reports and analytics and ranking systems and things like this. Was this pre-Moneyball or post-Moneyball? Probably around the time of Moneyball, actually. At that time, nobody was talking hugely about using analytics to really drive outcomes and so you were kind of coming on the scene at the same time as people just starting to go down that path. Am I understanding that right? No question. Yeah, it was to me it was like, you know, there was this problem where 
you know, as a high school prospect, you know, if you were a, you know, a highly touted high school prospect, you would go to these events. They're basically combines. And so in baseball, they're called showcases, right? And so the leading company in the country that puts these events on is called Perfect Game. And still today, they are the conglomerate in the space. Um, They're actually located in Iowa. So I used to attend, I think I probably attended two or three of their national events, my sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. And so at these events, you come together, uh, pitchers throw off the mound with radar guns, and infielders take ground balls, outfielders throw, and there's all kinds of college coaches and Major League Baseball scouts there evaluating talent. After those events end, all of these kids basically go back and they play their high school season, they play their summer ball season, but nobody knows, nobody knew or had the ability to track how they did, you know, how their raw abilities translated to real outcomes. And so I was always like, there seems to be a disconnect there. So I basically picked up the phone. I called Perfect Game and the founder, his name is Jerry Ford. I'll never forget this week. Um, I said, hey, you know, my name's Russ. I'm not sure if you remember me, but I, I attended a couple of your events and handful of years back. Uh, and he was like, yeah, of course I remember you. And I was like, hey, look, I have this idea. I know it sounds kind of crazy. And I laid it out for him. And he was like, wow, that, that sounds pretty interesting. He's like, you know, let me think on it and, and so on. Uh, and the next day, he called me back and said, hey, I've been thinking about this idea. I'm very interested. I'd like to fly you out here and uh, talk with you more about it. And so I was like, all right, let's go. Uh, so, so Russ, I want to ask you, did you already have a relationship with Jerry before this phone call? No more than maybe, you know, shaking his hand at an event with, you know, three other, 300 other athletes just saying, hey, thanks for having me, something like that. But no, it was not a personal event. Found his number on, on the website. And um, I just knew that they had the keys and the brand in that ecosystem to what I was trying to get to. And that was the information. So yeah, honestly, about five days later, I was on a plane out to, uh, out to Iowa. It was very strange. So listeners, what I want you to hear is you're going to hear this consistently on this show. The people that are doing big, successful things do not wait for someone else to come along and create their opportunity. You hear this time and time again, and here Russ has shaken this guy's hand. This guy probably doesn't even know who Russ is. That doesn't stop him from saying, you know what? Why not me? He picks up the phone and calls. And you know why Jerry takes that call? Because nobody else picks up the phone and makes the call because they're all sitting around saying, well, no one will listen to me. They're not going to answer. Everybody thinks that way. So when somebody like Russ picks up the phone and calls Jerry, it stands out because nobody else has the guts to go do it. So you're going to hear that consistently. I love that Russ is such a great example of that. So Russ, Jerry takes your call, offers to fly you out. What happens next? Yeah. So five days later, I'm on a plane uh, heading out to Iowa to meet with with Jerry. Uh, So he's got big, beautiful corner office on the second level of a massive warehouse. And on the first level is AstroTurf, number of batting cages, mounds. I mean, it looks like a basically an indoor baseball stadium. And I go up there and I chat with him and kind of take him through what I'm thinking. And I basically say to him, look, if you're open to putting your brand on this, I think it could really help you drive eyeballs and drive additional value to, to what you're doing. And you know, what I would ask in return is, I need the information of the top 500 prospects that you have in each class, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. If you could provide to me their names, their addresses, the positions they play, what they're all about, I can take that information and build this out. And I left that meeting, and I'm dating myself here a bit, but I left that meeting with a CD-ROM <laughs> of all of that information. And you know, I'll never forget it, walking out of there being like, oh my God, I can't believe I have this information in my hand right now. So you know, long story short, I, I took that data and sent out at this time 
It was hard mailers uh, to every single one of those prospects with a unique ID code where they could sign up for free. They could enter all their information after each game and basically sold subscriptions to that uh, platform to professional baseball scouts, professional baseball organizations, college coaches, division one, two, three, junior college, uh, et cetera. Uh, and they use that information to monitor student athletes that they were thinking of or had already uh, made offers to. It was really fun. It was something I was passionate about. I went down and had a booth, like an exhibitor booth, I'll never forget, in, in, in Philly uh, at the College Baseball Coaches Convention and, you know, saw my old college coach there. It was, a, it was a really fun time for me. You know, again, something that I knew was not going to be, you know, the end all be all for me, but I really loved it. You know, I enjoyed it uh, every day. But I think the most important takeaway from that experience, I did that for, you know, almost two years and then kind of phased it out was it turned me on to the power of taking fragmented data that is in a number of different places that is hard to get and pulling it into a single resource that allows you to you know, run you know, analytics on it, uh, run queries into it, and basically organize a, an ecosystem in something that's very actionable and understandable. And so when I founded Fintrix, which we can we can touch on in a moment, that was really the first time that I had been aware or really come to to love not only that process, but how scalable a business like that uh, could be. Now, candidly, that was not the right domain to to scale a bit, you know, a, a big business in, you know, in that small niche high school baseball prospect world. But it really helped me understand, you know, the power of that. And, and I loved it. What made you ultimately close that down? You know what? I think it was just kind of seeing the writing on the wall that it was it's a really small market. Um, there was only so many coaches to sell that to, only so many Major League Baseball organizations to sell that to. I didn't see kind of a long-term scalable path, you know, could have brought it into other sports, um, you know, football and basketball and so on. But really, baseball was my love. And again, I was at this stage of my life where it was like, I wanted to do things. That, and lucky enough, I still get to do that today. But I wanted to do things that I loved and that I was passionate about. And I was fortunate and lucky enough to have basically stumbled into like, hey, this is an interesting model. Never mind that it's you know on these baseball prospects. Finding an inefficiency in a set of information or data and research, whatever the medium, pulling it all together building a beautiful, you know, chassis for that information and then presenting it in a really understandable and easy to digest manner, like there's something there. And so that's kind of how that how that came about. And it's funny because it, it kind of loops me back in, right? So after that, I was like, oh man, I got to get a real job. <laughs> I can't be, can't be doing this kind of stuff forever. forever. So, you know, I took a job um, selling financial products you know, financial planning products, even some insurance products uh, for John Hancock. Did that for about a year, maybe a little bit more. And I didn't love it. Uh, I, I liked getting into the finance uh, piece. I've always been super interested in, in finance. You know, my, my parents were you know, in the financial uh, space, always loved it, always reading about it, things like that. But that wasn't the spot for me. And so I left there uh, after a bit north uh, of a year. And I went and took a uh, another sales job, uh, this time in the financial uh, space, raising money for uh, hedge funds. So I took a, a role with a uh, independent uh, asset placement firm by the name of Wyndham Capital Group in Boston. And so Wyndham had been around since I think 1992, a really early adopter in, in kind of the uh, asset placement space. We had four single manager hedge funds that we're raising capital for, uh, and they ranged from probably about 200 million in AUM, uh, 200 million in assets, to up to about maybe 600, something like that. And so the firm had a really deep Rolodex of institutional names, institutional investors, which they had raised, you know, billions of dollars for over time. Uh, however, there was this kind of like, hey, this family office thing, we've never really been able to tap into it, you know? And so, of course, they stick me on it. 
And listeners, uh, in our episode with Brian Awe from, you know, a few weeks back, we actually talked pretty heavily about family offices and what those are, why they're so important to the capital ecosystem. So if you're not familiar with the family office concept, be sure to go take a listen to that episode with Brian Awe and you'll hear a lot more about family offices. So keep going, Russ. Yeah, of course. So you know, it was like, hey, um, you know, institutional side, we feel like we're doing a really good job there. Um, but, you know, we've never really targeted or kind of worked our way into this family office market. So that's kind of what I was tasked with and where my time and focus was to be spent. In my day to day, I was trying to create relationships, get meetings, you know, take prospects in the family office world to lunch. Um, get down to New York or travel with the ultimate goal of being getting the portfolio manager of the firms that we were working with in front of these family offices and the decision makers uh, with the hopes that uh, you know they would find the the strategy and the manager compelling and interesting and you know eventually make an investment and that's how we were compensated as a firm and that's how I was compensated as somebody raising capital for for these managers. So it was very quickly in that role that I realized, whoa, there's a huge gap. There's, a, there's an issue here. Like We had essentially what was an unlimited budget for tech, data products, platforms, anything we needed. So it, it was not that we didn't have it, we couldn't afford it, I didn't have access to it. I had it all. And it was just so clear that the institutional market, there was some really nice products out there that you could get to this information that, that you needed to get out there and, and make prospecting calls and, and, and book meetings and, and kind of handle that motion. In the family office world, it did not exist. So any data that was out there was like this really old, archaic data, you know, it was no contact information. Sometimes there'd be three contacts you know, if you, you know, bought data and there would be no way to get in touch with them, no background, no ancillary information. And so I was really spending all of my time trying to do this on my own, right? So Google, LinkedIn, um, scouring through the old stale uh, Rolodex that, that the firm had, just really inefficient ways of spending my day-to-day and my time. It's like, hey, I'm compensated for getting... Uh, portfolio manager X in front of family office Y, bringing those two parties together, presenting a, a valuable investment opportunity. That's where my time should be spent. It's not trying to find who these groups are and who the people behind the firms are, et cetera. So, you know, I did this for a couple of years and had some success, raised some money through family offices, basically doing this, but it was nowhere near as efficient as I felt like it it, it could be. So that was really kind of the genesis of saying, you know what, it's got to be a better way than this. I'm just one nobody in a massive market here. So went out on my own and and started that uh, and started that process. So essentially, kind of sat down. I'll never forget it. That first day, I was kind of in the second bedroom of the apartment I was living in at the time in Hingham, Massachusetts, which is a, about uh, 15 miles directly south of Boston. Um, and just sat down with a notebook and kind of started to scope out in a perfect world, like what would be the things that I would have wanted in my asset raising seat that was not available that I would have loved to have had at my disposal. And so those were things like understanding who these families, you know, who they are, how did they get here? Is this new money? Is this generational money? How was the wealth created? Was it oil and gas? Was it real estate? Was it you know, entrepreneurship? Was it financial services? Was it a, a hedge fund that's morphed into a family office? You know, who's the creator of the wealth behind the curtain of the family? What do they invest in? What do they like? You know, are there any previous direct investments that they've made that would help me understand how they think, you know, what their investment thesis looks like? And then on the individual side, it's like, okay, who are the core people at the family? You know, who co- handles what? Who covers which uh, sectors? Who's the right person for manager research and, and due diligence? It's a type of information that would allow me to humanize my outreach and pull all this information into kind of one, one spot is what I was looking for. In this family office world, just kind of a blanket blast email. You know, I'm sure you, you, know, you understand this. 
uh, that's not, <laughs> not going to get you very far. You know, I, I just wanted to know how to humanize my outreach and be armed with the type of information that would allow me to get to the right person, have some sort of hook or some sort of kind of personalized info that would help me create rapport, build relationships and all these things. And so in addition to that, it was like, okay, I want all this data and research, but I also had this other problem where I had, you know, four spreadsheets open. I had a CRM open. I had a, you know, three data products open. I was like, this is, this is insane. You sound like our life at Mammoth prior to Fintrix. I mean, we, there are thousands and thousands of family offices out there and registered investment advisory firms out there. And it's like, a, you know, trying to fish in the dark. I mean, it was just like, it was absolutely crazy. All the data we were sorting through and we were doing all the LinkedIn and the Googling and all these things. And what we sat down and said, you know what we really want to know? We're an emerging fund. We want to only be reaching out to investors that we know are reasonably comfortable investing with emerging managers. And you know what? We're a healthcare fund. We only want to reach out to investors that are comfortable investing in healthcare because there's a lot of investors that are not. And we just felt like we were beating our heads up against the wall. And then we come across Fintrix and it was like our whole world opens up to, yes, you can just sort by people that are okay with venture capital, emerging managers, and healthcare. And we narrowed our focus so much. So what you were dreaming about it was absolutely our problem. And thank you for coming up with a way to actually solve that. Uh, wonderful to hear you say that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's a, real, that's a real problem. I mean, there's, you'd be surprised. There's still huge asset managers out there who are doing this so inefficiently. And so you know, that was the goal. That was what, what I wanted to build and how I wanted to bring everything into one place. So, you know, even the ability to, you know, tag different uh, families or log a call note or create a reminder task or just kind of the blocking and tackling uh, items that would help me move my day-to-day along. And so set out to build it, started that process. I'll never forget, um, you know, I'm quite close with my, with my mom and, you know, I, I, Drop there a call one day and say, hey, look, I'm thinking about doing this thing. I have this idea. I think I'm going to go down to TD Bank or Capital One, I think it was at the time, and uh, take a couple of credit cards out and give this, thing a, give this thing a go. And I was like, what do you think? And she was just like, you know what? If you think it's a great idea, go for it. Just go for it. You can always, you know, you can always turn back. You know, figure something else out, and and so uh, so off I went, and basically started to build it out. I would spend my days um, cut into basically two or three parts. So I would spend you know a a quarter of the day writing out these profiles and doing the actual research um, on my own, putting them into basically long form uh, Excel uh, docs. I'd spend another piece of the day you know, scoping out features, functionality, flows within the the interface and how I would want that to work in a perfect world. Uh, side note, much of which was technically impossible uh, at the time or for what I could, uh, I could afford. Uh, in the latter part of my days, talking to uh, an outsourced uh, developer who I had hired uh, for very short money to get, you know, a, a minimal viable product just kind of get me that MVP where I could uh, have something. So basically it was this repetitive motion, writing uh, and doing research on these profiles to where I would get 20, 30, 40, or 50. Uh, I would send those in blocks to the developer who would take them and import them into the platform. And then uh, I would feedback the platform, you know, bugs, move this around, don't like this, let's make this change. And eventually after about, I'd say six to eight months, I had something where I was like, okay, I've got a bunch of information in here. I can create logins. Uh, the information is solid. It's not large, but it's solid. So from that point forward, it was a constant back and forth of half of my day spent researching and writing data profiles and the other half of my day cold calling asset managers. Hey, I've got this thing. This is what it does. 
love to give you a look at it, love to give you, you know, a trial, feedback, so on and so forth. And I was able to start to sell some subscriptions. And as I did, I would take those funds, uh, take off the top what I needed to pay my minimal, you know, expenses at the time, put some food in my stomach and uh, take the rest and dump it back into development. And it was that rinse and repeat motion for almost a year and a half of build uh, until, you know, early 2017. Um, I said, you know what? All right, I'm going to go out. I'm going to get an actual office. I'm going to make my first hire. And um, off we went. So that's kind of how we got to to this point. It was um, a, a bit of a trying road at the beginning, but I, I just, I think what kept me going uh, at the in the early days, uh, which I'm very reflective uh, on right now, especially, you know, after raising this round where it was kind of two things. One, I knew personally how real that problem was and how frustrating that problem was. And it sounds like you understand it also. Uh, and secondly, I had no plan B. So I had to figure out how to make plan A a success. Failure was just not an option for me. You know, those two things combined um, kind of pushed me through those that tough early stretch. And, you know, I would say very fortunate to be where we are today. In the very first episode of our Beyond the Ordinary podcast, we spoke with Naveed Nathu about the future of education. And what Naveed talked about so candidly was this idea that, you know, when things don't go right in school, we call that an F. But in business and really in life, those are the best ways we learn. And the fact that you leverage that and use that knowledge you learned from the first business, even though it didn't go quite how you hoped it would, to really build into the next one that's been just tremendously successful. That's such a cool story. What it made me think about, Russ, was actually in, in my early days of my career with some business partners, we started an ice cream store. Ended up being an awful, awful execution. Uh, you know, uh, apparently putting an ice cream store in a small town where it's cold half of the year just isn't an outstanding scalable business model. But our whole idea was let's not buy a Dairy Queen franchise. Let's become the next Dairy Queen who is franchising for other people. And so through that, I learned all about franchising and that miserable failure of an ice cream store ended up being what gave me the knowledge foundation to build a nationwide financial service company that functioned a lot like a franchise. So one of my greatest failures actually leveraged into one of my greatest successes. And that's what I've seen in, in your story as well. So congrats. And Russ, just because it's fun to talk about this, just to share how miserable of a failure our ice cream store was, our number one selling product in the middle school market was a slushy with Mountain Dew. And guess what we called this? Tell me. Yellow Snow. <laughs> just, you can imagine, just take that and compound it by, you know, failure after failure. It was a terrible idea. But we learned so much from that and ended up building a nationwide financial service company that was incredibly successful, really built on the foundation we learned from that failed experience trying to build an ice cream franchise. So I love that your story comes full circle from the baseball data to the actual family office and RIA data. That's just incredible. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. You know, and I think at that time, obviously, the baseball piece was really important to me. But now, you know, what we're building here at, at Fintrix is equally as important to me. And I'm incredibly passionate about it. And, you know, my feet hit the ground every day. I can't wait to get to get to the office and not only to be with our team here, but um, to innovate and create and build. Like, I, I really get a genuine rush from, you know, having an idea. And then taking that idea and, and, you know, scribbling it down on a whiteboard and then getting it from a whiteboard into something that's more coherent and then taking it from that form and getting it to engineers. And then that whole motion until it becomes something that's live and being used by, you know, all of these firms throughout the world to help them, you know, accomplish their goals and find success and make their life more efficient for me is geeked out as that sounds, that is that really moves the needle for me. I, I enjoy that process a ton. And so I, I feel really fortunate and lucky to get to do something every day that 
that I love so much with people that I really care about and, um, and that are in it to build something, something really great. And so today, I mean, you know, it started really, uh, really small, um, you know, in that, in that bedroom of my apartment. But today, you know, we serve hundreds of clients throughout the globe. Um, and the platform has really now evolved into, um, something that empowers our customers to map and, and access and sell into this massive and really complex world of uh, family offices and registered investment advisors. And so, you know, what started as that little, you know, read the profiles myself and get it over to one engineer, you know, today we've got 40 plus uh, researchers uh, working on the data, you know, all day, every day, you know, a large engineering team. Um, And we basically offer access to all of that information and research and analytics on the family offices and RIAs by, you know, offering it with a really intuitive search function uh, with proactive alerts in our interface. So in our cloud-based platform, and it allows our clients to really kind of efficiently identify and navigate their way through the data. Uh, It's really, as you know, it's it's rapidly expanding, uh, the private wealth space. So it allows them to stay privy to changes and updates and things like this. Um, And then we take all that information and we combine it with data science and tech and our research team. And the end result is a very actionable, organized set of of data and research that our customers are, are able to leverage throughout their their day to day. So that's kind of a, a little bit about you know what it is and and what it does from a usability standpoint. You know we spend a tremendous amount of time on taking all of this uh, information, data, research, intel, news, etc., and using technology to keep our end users in the know of actionable pieces of information that they can use at that time, right? So whether that's one of their top prospects we just mentioned in the Wall Street Journal or in, you know, a press release or a news mention or, you know, somebody that they're speaking with is now, was now named to the investment committee or CIO, things that are able to kind of move the needle and allow them to make an outreach that's not just, hey, just checking in and circling back. Like that type of stuff we feel is really, really vital. And, you know, as an example, like what that looks like in, in real life, you know, and in practice is, and there's a, a myriad of different use cases. It's a large market. But if you take, you know, let's say a hedge fund uh, or a, pri- a private equity firm, um, you take an individual there that's, you know, maybe on the IR team that's raising capital for their fund, you know, to be successful, not only do they need to identify all of this information, who are the right allocators for their offering. So in the example you gave prior, it's like, hey, people that are into healthcare or that are allocate to emerging managers, right? So it's like they need to identify who the right allocators are for their products, their services, their offering. And then they need to stay current on that information because it's constantly changing. And they need to be able to, to have it be actionable. And then they want to be able to say, okay, I need to slice into this data and query it down to this specific data set here. I want to put this into a list in the platform. I'm traveling to Chicago. Let me take off all of the Chicago groups, put them into a sub list and you know, start to try to book meetings through that subset. There's just so much that, that we allow them to do or that we try to empower them to be able to do that otherwise would take them hours and days of work and shrink that down to, you know, 15 clicks, get what they need to, to get to, organize that information in one spot and really kind of, you know, it turbocharge their efficiency. That's what we're about. And that's what we're striving to, to solve for. I love how you guys are taking so much waste out of the industry. I mean, that all, all the time that's being spent targeting people that have zero interest and are not going to have any interest investing in a specific fund, you're eliminating so much of that and allowing people to really focus their efforts. And this is good for the fund managers or the asset managers and for those family offices and RIA firms out there. Because nobody wants to clog up each other's inboxes on something that's not going to go anywhere. So you're, you're just eliminating so much of the waste. And my hope is that 
that makes it much more relevant for somebody to open their inbox and see something coming from a new manager that maybe they haven't met before and be willing to look at it because they have this sense that nobody would be contacting them unless they already knew it was going to be a good match. So if we can get to that point, boy, that would just make the whole capital allocation structure so much more efficient than it is today. Yeah, could not agree more. Um, could not agree more. That's the type of that's the type of information in in motion that we are, you know, that we spend all our time uh, trying to make more efficient pairing data and technology to get to that outcome. And so, you know, we're often asked, you know, by our customers whether they're in the kind of demo stage or they're just onboarded and and you know, in the hands of our client success team. It's like, how do you go about, <laughs> you know, hey, I've been doing this on my own manually for three years. How on earth do you go about getting, organizing and mapping out all of this information? And so I think the key for what we're doing is all of this, you know, AI and algorithms and all of this tech that we've built that help us organize and map and digest all of this proprietary information that we're gathering every single day, right? It's from hundreds of thousands of data sources. And then we take that all in, we apply our data science techniques, our algorithms to help organize, map, cleanse it. And then our research team sits on top of that and enriches it further and handles a lot of the QA to ensure accuracy and things like this. So a big part of what we do is to say, okay, here's all the information in these detailed, you know, well-written, you know, profiles of these individuals and of the families and the RIAs themselves. But we peel it back further to what we call like our enriched personalized data. And so we are big believers that on the contact level. So if I'm reaching out to you at XYZ family, you should be armed with anything and everything that you could know about that person because whether you're prepping for a meeting, trying to get a meeting, you know, it really doesn't matter. So what we call that personalized data is things like, you know, where did you go to school? When did you go there? Where did you previous previously work? When did you work there? Okay. Who are your potential associates? Who are who are the former classmates of this person that might be able to get you in, make an introduction? We even pair it back is detailed as things like what is this prospect passionate about outside of work? So for me, like I love to golf, I love to fish. If it's a beautiful day and I'm not at work, I'm out on the boat, you know, I'm an avid Patriots fan and a Red Sox fan, right? So to know that, hey, this guy also played college baseball and he loves to golf and, you know, he's just outside of Boston. That's such an easier call and outreach for me to make, or it's like, hey, you know, here's another, you know, UConn alum. There's just a ton of, uh, of value that can come from humanizing that outreach, especially in this industry. And so we've built all of these algorithms that basically prepare relatability scores on a zero to a hundred scale inside of our products. So get turned on into Fintrix. If you are accessing RIA platform is about 740,000 contacts. And for each of those contacts, there's a relatability score that's dynamically weighted and constantly getting smarter each day that basically says, hey, we both have affiliations with this charity. We both have ties to Nantucket. We both love to golf. Hey, we're, we both went to this university, but we went there at the same time. So that weights it higher, things like that. So that way, when you're looking at like a really large set of data, you can start to like bubble to the top where your best path in may be. And then for each of those contacts, we provide custom conversation starters uh, with tech. So when you open up a contact, it gives you all the information about that person. And then here are some things you could use to start and create meaningful rapport. That's the type of stuff that we believe is the future of taking static data that can be commoditized and using tech to organize it and turn it into actionable data that is personalized to each individual user. So what's personal to me inside of the platform is going to be different than what than what you see in terms of where your best path in may lie. So we we do a lot in that regard and we, and we think a lot about how to how to go about that to give our customers the best chance of of success. 
That's an incredibly thoughtful approach. And I know our team has found it to be just incredibly beneficial because it allows our team to focus their energy and efforts on where can we have the best outcome. And, you know, I, I look at the world pretty simply from an efficiency standpoint. It's, you know, the, on, on one side of the axis, there's uh, effort. And on the other side of the effort, on the other side, there's outcome. And if it's a really high effort for a really low outcome, that's a bad combination. But if it's a low effort for a high outcome, that's a great combination. And what I love is the efficiency that Fintrix helps create. So in operations, I'm always thinking about effort and impact. And we always want something that's low effort, high impact. We don't want high effort, low impact. And I feel like that's how most asset managers today are spending their time and energy. It's high effort, low impact. They're going and trying to talk to all the wrong people. They know nothing about them. They don't know if there's any affinity. They're not building those connections. And what Fintrix has really allowed our team to do is use low effort for maximum impact. It's just been incredible. And so you started this thing out back in 2014, bootstrapping. I just saw six days ago, you know, we're here in December of 2021. Six days ago, I saw it announced you're raising your Series A. So tell me about that. Yeah, um, you're right. We did bootstrap it and we uh, we just closed on that Series A um, last week. So, um, you know, we've been revenue funded uh, right from right from the start on the back of, uh, of our customers that, you know, allowed us to continue to really grow the business and grow to 50 plus people uh, in terms of uh, our team size and hundreds of customers. And we were not looking for capital. Um, you know, we've uh, been approached a, you know, a fair amount by uh, growth private equity firms that uh, were interested in, you know, either buying a piece of the business or, um, you know, infusing some capital for, uh, for additional growth. Um, so this one was really interesting to me. We were approached I believe probably midsummer by uh, a gentleman named Jason Krantz, who actually led our Series A. Just a really unique um, opportunity for us to take capital from somebody who's been there and done it. You know, I always focused on you know if we were going to take outside money, it was really really important to me that it would be the type of investment that would come not just with the capital but with you know hands-on guidance and insight into the industry you know a, a specific value prop and for Jason he has scaled multiple businesses very similar to ours um, some in our space uh, and his latest business is a very similar business to ours but instead of the you know family office private wealth registered investment advisor domain it's uh, in the healthcare data space, right? So it's the same concept, fragmented data in a myriad of different places, bringing it all together into a really organized, addressable platform. Uh, and that business has been incredible. Uh, he took that company public in September of, of this year. And I'm really excited to have uh, Jason and, uh, and Joe Marisolos that also uh, contributed uh, on the $9 million Series A as partners of ours to help us grow and accelerate not only uh, our team, uh, our client success team, our go-to-market teams, but really, uh, and probably most importantly, help us accelerate the build of additional data sets as we really continue to say, we feel as though we have a, a very unique way of approaching data and presenting it and allowing it to be dynamic. And we've built a really nice chassis for that. Um, and our current customers uh, are constantly asking us, hey, could you include this data set? Or have you thought about adding that data set? Because they love our interface and we can provide a consolidated option for them so they do not have to use two, three, four different products. Um, so um, we will be adding additional data sets shortly down the line. We are just rolling out this registered investment advisor data module, which is really exciting. Um, as we move into the new year here. So super exciting times and, and incredibly fortunate to have Jason and Joe uh, as partners. Could not, be, could not be more excited. And I know our team uh, feels the same way. Uh, future feels really bright uh, around here right now. 
I love that, Russ. You know, obviously our favorite investments to consider from the fund standpoint are those companies that aren't looking for capital. (laughs) That's usually a very, very good sign. Uh, That's really what got me into this whole venture capital industry to begin with. I uh, I was talking with a company that needed zero capital but I very much wanted to put some of my capital into that business. <laughs> and, you know, that was uh, several years ago. And now here I am today in the venture capital world. So, Russ, this has been tremendous. We're going to dive right into the final segment of our show uh, where I get to ask a couple of questions. So the first is the question that everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question I want to know. And I have never done this before. I actually have two questions for you that I won't be able to go on with my day unless I get them answered because I'll just keep thinking about it. And after that, we'll wrap it up by asking the real question that uh, some of our listeners want to know. So my questions for you, my first question is this, you know, you, you played baseball through college. What position did you play? Uh, I was a, a center fielder uh, all through uh, high school and um, all through college as well. So you're pretty quick. <laughs> I was pretty quick. Um, you know, maybe not as quick today, but, you know, enough to talk a little smack to a couple of guys, the younger guys around the office that I could still whoop them in a race. I love it. You know, I was pretty fast back in the day. You know, I played catcher in fourth grade. So uh, we have that almost in common. (laughs) And center field, I was pretty quick and uh, thought I was still very quick and challenged my son this past summer to a race. And my son's now a 16-year-old potential D1 track recruit. And so, you know, I, I thought, you know, I'm I'm quick still. Things will be fine, but I better give myself a head start. You know, I, I just turned 40. And so uh, I stand up on our porch and I say, hey, Jacob, let's race to the tree. Ready, go. And he was sitting down on the other side of the patio. So I have at least a 10 foot lead from standing. And by the time he actually gets up, I'm already around the side of our house and there's two trees. One is, you know, I don't know, maybe a hundred feet from my house. And then the other is, you know, let's call it a hundred yards. Well, we were racing to the hundred yard tree, but he caught me by the time we got to the first hundred feet tree and then just demolished me. I mean, it was beyond embarrassing. Uh, So I learned I'm no longer quick, but uh, it was fun to see my kid just absolutely destroy me. He'd never, (laughs) we'd, we'd never done a race since he was a little guy. So I, I knew he was fast. I didn't know he was that fast. So it was very fun. Love it. Russ, my, my other question, because you're in Boston, I have to ask this. Have you ever been over to Cambridge to eat at Mr. Bartley's Burgers? You know what? I have not been to Mr. Bartley's. Uh, I did live in the North End for three years. So I spent a lot of time uh, on Hanover Street uh, and in the North End, uh, but have not been to that particular spot. Well, next time I come to Boston, it's my treat. Listeners out there, there are not a lot of places in the world where I would just get on a flight and fly from Indiana over somewhere just to eat. (laughs) But I have actually taken a flight, flown to Boston just to eat at Mr. Bartley's Burgers. If you take me up on this great food, uh, just remember, if you go there, listeners, you got to bring cash. They do not accept a credit card or debit card, which if you've just flown to Boston to eat there, can be a little bit of a predicament if you do not know your ATM pin at the moment. So uh, I did end up getting my food, but uh, I had to be a little bit resourceful to make that happen. So Russ, next time I'm in town... Uh, we're going to Mr. Bartley's Burgers. It is absolutely worth it. Done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that takes us to uh, our real question that I want to wrap up on. Certainly, Russ, you know, we have some asset managers out there, some fund managers, maybe placement agents, or as we mentioned, even private companies looking to raise money. There are more and more family offices, as you heard from Brian Awe's story, where he was joining a family office that was moving from only investing in funds to actually doing direct investment into companies. There are more and more family offices that are going down that path. So whether you're a fund manager or a placement agent or uh, a private company looking to raise capital, 
I can assure you from Mammoth's standpoint, uh, we have not encountered a better tool for that segment than Fintrix. And Russ, if somebody listening wants to reach out and get in touch with Fintrix or get a demo going, what is their best way to do that? Sure. Yeah, the best way to do that is to head right to our website, uh, Fintrix.com, F-I-N-T-R-X.com. Um, sign up for a demo or a trial inside of uh, inside of the site, and we will be back to you same day um, and get get that coordinated for you on the calendar. We've got an amazing business development team that can really kind of spend some time with you, understand what your needs are, what your pain point is, um, and how we can solve that for you, not only for you, but for your team as well. We have a number of features within the platform that allow you to share and contrast information with other team members. So if you're struggling to access and get a hold of this information in an efficient and a timely manner, I really believe we can we can help. So come on over and we'll take care of you and hopefully bring you on board and get you to our client success team who can ensure a, a positive outcome and successful uh, venture with, uh, with Fintrix. Listeners, we have no relationship with Fintrix or Russ or anyone to say this. We just absolutely believe in their technology. It has truly revolutionized us to spend way less effort on the fundraising aspect of what we do and get a much greater impact. Their team was incredible. Exactly what Russ said. They got on with our team. They listened to our needs. And within moments, they had us dialed into an actual uh, really, really strong targeted list of family offices and RIA firms that our fund would be the most beneficial for. And that has led to some just incredible conversations. So uh, again, no, we're not getting paid to say this. We just absolutely believe in what they're doing. Uh, It'll be absolutely worth your time to reach out to them. So Russ, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, thanks so much for joining us here at Beyond the Ordinary. We look forward to being back with you soon. Thanks so much, Tommy. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.